Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Must open up Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Let's just pray. Father, we come to you this evening. We're here to worship you in spirit and in truth, to lift your name up on high, to give you all glory and all honor and all praise, for you alone are worthy. There is none like you, not in the heavens above, nor in the earth below, nor in everything that is under the earth. You alone are the great king above all gods. We give you praise, we give you glory, and we give you honor, Lord. I just pray that the things that we speak would be your words this evening, Lord, the things that we look into in your scripture, that they would make sounds in our hearts that are pleasing to you, that it would be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear, Lord, to hear us rejoicing in your word in a green with you and what you speak into our lives. We just yield our hearts over to you, Holy Spirit. Give us an ear to hear what it is you have to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be looking at the, we're going to, uh, if you've got those notes, we're going to start with verse 9 of chapter 21. And uh, I'm not planning to do any more than verses 9 through 27 this evening. The details of the new Jerusalem, uh, I think it says on your notes, at least it does on mine. Uh, But to begin with, I want to open up Colossians chapter 3, and this is just something the Holy Spirit put in my heart to share before we get into Revelation 21 in Colossians chapter 3, because we're going to be looking at those things which are above, not things that will be, but things that are now, for Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. In Colossians 3 verse 1, it says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, and I believe everyone this evening would say, yes, I have been raised up with Christ. So if you have been raised up with Christ, if you have been born again, if you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, then this is how we should be living our lives. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, past tense, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. It's a treasure hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed in his coming, then you also will be revealed in the resurrection with him in glory. So therefore, consider the members of your earthly body, see your flesh, as dead to immorality, to impurity, to passion, to evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. These things amount to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. There's no shame in that. It's how you used to live. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. Put these all out of your mouth. 
And do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who has been renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all, and he is in all. So we could keep on reading from Colossians, because what an amazing uh, book it is indeed. But I just want to tell you, before we even look at Revelation chapter 21, uh, further look at it and the, and the new Jerusalem, that the things we're talking about tonight and the things that we're looking at tonight, they are more practical than anything in the Bible, I think, or they are as practical, practical as anything you've ever heard or read. And sometimes we have this attitude towards that, uh, that uh, towards eternity and what's coming and the new Jerusalem uh, as if that's just something you know, whether, whether we think like this, I know we don't say this, but our attitude and the way we live is as if that would never happen, as if that's not really there. But I want you to know that it's not something that just will happen. It's something that is right now. It's more real than this world that we see with our physical eyes. And I say that because everything we see with our physical eyes will one day be destroyed, but that will continue on forever. And so today, my life If I am raised up with Christ Jesus, it means that my life is hidden in him. My real life is a treasure hidden in Christ Jesus, and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So what I should be seeking and continually seeking are those things that are above, continually seeking the things we'll be reading about tonight. And I should order my life in accordance with who I am really in Christ and who I will be for all eternity. We were talking about some of that on Sunday. And then it gets so very practical. So that means according, as far as my flesh goes and all these lists of things which aren't complete lists, they just uh, basically draw our attention to these things, everything in life that's idolatry really. You know, when we live in sin and we're slaves to sin, then we are idols uh, we've made idols out of the things we desire, even if they're good things. I mean, there's nothing evil about money. Jesus didn't say money is the root of all evil. He said the love of money, the worship of money, making an idol out of it, that's what the root of all evil is. You know, uh, sex is not uh, an evil. It's a, it's a great good that God created and, and gave to us. It's who we are as people. But immorality is a great evil because it perverts that and makes it into an idol. So all these things are things that you know, but as we look toward heaven and we look at this vision of the heavenly Jerusalem, I I really, my prayer for tonight is that we draw our focus up to our real home, where we really are and really live in Christ Jesus, and that that focus on heaven, that focus on the new Jerusalem, that focus on Jesus would, in very practical ways, change our lives and the way we're living on this earth and the things that we think about. Notice that what he writes about there in Colossians are things that we do that are wrong, things that we think that are wrong, and mostly things that we say that are wrong. Because so often in life, the things that we speak out of our mouths, they are the evil seeds that give, get, take root in the ground of our flesh and produce the sin that, that eventually happens. And we look at people that have 
fallen from grace, as they say, or something big has happened in their life, or something bad, really bad, that we've done in our lives. But it all has its roots way back in what we think about, right? And in what we speak. And so it's very practical and very important that we actually think about the New Jerusalem. And we talk about the New Jerusalem. And we rejoice in what God has done for us. So go with me over to Revelation 21. We'll be mainly looking at this, but we're going to look at some other scriptures too. And uh, it says, beginning with verse 9, that's uh, where we left off last week. Uh, it says, and, and I'll just remind you that we're in the new heaven and the new earth, okay? So the 1,000-year reign of Christ has been completed, and Satan is released from his prison in the bottomless pit, in the abyss, and people rebel again against God, uh, and they're all destroyed, and they're all judged, and they've all been thrown into the lake of fire, okay? And then everything is burned up with fire, and there's a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation. And I'll talk about that a little bit later when we get to it, and how that relates to what we've been talking about on Sundays, about these, these feast days, and in particular about the Feast of Tabernacles, which we are in right now, even this very evening. So it says in verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues, he came and he spoke with me. I think it's interesting that the angel that comes to speak with him is one of those angels of God's wrath and God's judgment. And they're still here a thousand years later. The angels don't die. And this angel comes and speaks to him and uh, uh, says to him, Come here. And, and also it's interesting to note, remember that John physically is on the Isle of Patmos, okay? He said, I was in the, at the very beginning of the book, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. You know, he wasn't like one of these UFO stories caught up physically into some spaceship and taken away. He's physically located on the Isle, island of Patmos. And uh, it reads, we don't know for sure, but it reads as a series of visions, you know, that, that came to him all in one day. So I don't know if he was in a trance like Peter was, that's, uh, you know, the word that the King James uses for that anyway. But he's in the spirit. And in the spirit, he is conscious of things that he could never see in the flesh. So again, confirming that the spirit realm, who we are as spirit people, is more real than who we are as fleshly people. And so he's in the spirit, and he's kind of traveling through time spiritually, but he's in the same place physically. So this angel comes to him and speaks with him and says, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So that sets the tone for what we're going to read. This is the bride, the wife of the lamb. We are the bride of Christ. We are this new Jerusalem. This is our city. It's our home. And he carried me away in the spirit. And what I'm going to do tonight is just read little portions and talk about them instead of reading the whole thing at once. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Lisa, you're going to love this tonight. There's lots of stones in here in this chapter. As a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. So let's take a little pause right there and talk about what we just led, read. Notice that John is led in the spirit up to a great and a high mountain by this angel. 
And so he's set high above every mountain upon the earth. And remember that mountains are symbolic of kingdoms. He's led up into heaven, into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of the Father God. And, he's, and he, he, he looks down and he sees the new Jerusalem. Do you remember how Satan led Jesus up into a high mountain? Do you remember this in the temptation? And from that vantage point of the high mountain, Jesus looked down and it says that Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. Okay? And said, if you bow to me, then I will give you all these kingdoms of the earth. And, you know, and, and Jesus rejected that offer. But the Antichrist does not reject that offer. The Antichrist takes the devil up on that very offer. And that is what makes him the Antichrist. But now all of those kingdoms of the earth have been destroyed or they've been uh, dissolved into the kingdom of God. They've been made new. We'll see that there are still kings and still kingdoms in this chapter. Um, and that's also an interesting point I'll talk about in a few minutes. But he looks down and he sees the new Jerusalem. So there's now only this one great kingdom. We might call it an empire. You know, this kingdom that embraces all the kingdoms of the earth. And it's called the new Jerusalem. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 45, I'll just read that real quick instead of just reminding you of it. Um, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 45, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream with the interpretation, all the kingdoms of the earth are envisioned in that statue that he sees with the golden head being Babylon. But in verse 45, at the end of the interpretation, Daniel says to him, inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. So this is the mountain that Daniel or that John has been led up into is cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it, the stone, crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, what will take place in the future, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trust, trustworthy. So there is coming a day that this great stone is cut out of the mountain without hands. That's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God come down to the earth and it crushes all the other kingdoms into dust. So he's taken up into this high mountain and he looks out and he sees these things. And then it says, uh, describing that, that it has a great high wall uh, with 12 gates and at the gates are 12 angels. Uh, there, there are names uh, written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Now let's skip down for just a minute. Actually, let's read verse 13 also. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And I'll stop right there. So talking about these 12 gates, there is, we, we see already, and it's going to be measured in a few minutes, uh, because John's going to measure, the, or the, this angel's going to measure the city. So talking about the, the new Jerusalem, we, we see already that it's a perfect square. Okay, and that'll be described to us. It's actually a cube, but it's perfectly square. And on each side of that new Jerusalem, there are three gates to go in and out of. And it's very interesting that when God set up the camp of Israel way back in the wilderness, he set it up that way, that exact way, that the tabernacle would be right in the middle. Where God is, is right in the middle, the presence of God in the tabernacle of the congregation. And then the tribes were arranged, three tribes on the north, three on the south, three on the east, and three on the west. They were arranged in the same way 
by these gates. And so we see that there are three, 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 and three here. And if you get deep into the end of the book of Ezekiel, which Jerry has tried to do, I know because he was talking to me about it, there's a whole lot of detail in there. But one of the things that you'll notice if you really pay attention to the numbers is there's a certain size of the city proper, and then there's a certain size of the suburbs that go around the city. Okay, And so we have this picture of this kingdom that's ruled from the center uh, which is the new Jerusalem, the presence of God, the life of God that is hidden, our life that is hidden in Christ Jesus. So in Ezekiel 40, if we go back over there, from Ezekiel 40 all the way to the end of the book, there's just this complicated system of measurements and all these details about measuring the, the new Jerusalem. Uh, and, it's, and it is very interesting. It's not easy to read, uh, maybe, and you have to think a lot and study a lot. Uh, but if you'll remember when we talked about uh, Ezekiel measuring the city. I gave you this example of if you went out into some part of Nevada that you'd never been to before, you didn't have a map, you didn't have a GPS, and you had a pair of binoculars, and you were standing on a mountain, and you were looking at a mountain that was really far away. You would have one image of that mountain that you see from a distance. But if you were able to come right up to that mountain, to that very spot where the mountain is, you would see it in a completely different light. Okay? It would be much larger than it seemed to you from far away. And it would be much further away than it seemed to you from far away. So, you know, it's no mistake that in the New Testament we're told that Jesus is coming back soon. And we're like, it's been 2,000 years. You know, that doesn't sound like soon to me. And then Peter's like, it's okay. For God, that's just two days. You know, just your perspective is wrong. Not God's word is wrong. But our perspective needs to be adjusted to see things as, as God sees them. So Ezekiel sees this, but he sees it from a great distance. And so his description is one, and the description in the book of Revelation is uh, another thing entirely. For one thing, the measurements in the book of, of Revelation are at least 1,000 times larger than the measurements that Ezekiel sees, okay? Because he's seeing it from a great distance. But there's something really important that Ezekiel says about this city that I'm going to touch on in just a few minutes. So when Ezekiel measures the temple, if you'll remember, uh, we, we covered this, but when he measures the temple, he's told to not to, uh, to measure the outer court, okay? But when John measures the temple, remember in Revelation 11, in fact, let me just go back there for a minute and read a couple of verses. Revelation 11, verse 1 in the section that's talking about the two witnesses. It says, then there was given me, so John was given, a measuring rod like a staff. So it's kind of like a yardstick, but a stick that's a certain size that they would measure the, the, the land with. And so a measuring rod was given to him like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God in the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. So that's directly related to the time of the great tribulation. But still, he's measuring the temple. Ezekiel measures the temple in the Old Testament, and he measures the outer court. But John is told, don't measure the outer court. Leave it with the Old Testament measurements, because the outer court is for those who will trample it underfoot. In other words, leave them under the judgment of God. Don't invite them 
to come into the presence of God or don't allow them to come into the presence of God because they will trample the outer court underfoot. But the inner court is for those who worship God in spirit and in truth. So we see this difference. Then in Revelation 21, the third measuring verses, uh, we're going to see that neither John measures this nor any other man, but an angel will measure it this time. And when the angel remeasures the new Jerusalem, he will measure it as a city, here's the other difference, that has no temple in it. We'll see that there is no temple in this city. And there's a reason for that that's stated very plainly there. Because the entire city is holy. Everything is holy in the city. And the entire city is the temple because Christ is the temple. And when the angel measures it, instead of using this rod that Ezekiel uses and that John uses it, he, it will tell us that he uses a golden rod. And I also want you to notice that the city itself is in motion when John sees it. Okay, It's, it's like, a, like a spaceship coming down out of heaven. He looks at it and he says, I see this city and it's coming down out of heaven. So the presence of God is coming from heaven to tabernacle amongst us to live amongst us upon this earth. Huge mistake that people make when they say, when you die, you're going to go to heaven and live there forever. That's actually not true. You're going to be raised again. You're going to live on this earth in the thousand-year reign of Christ, and you will live on this earth throughout all eternity. Now, maybe we'll be able to fly to heaven or something. I don't know about that. But God made earth as our home, and it's a beautiful and a wonderful home for us to live in, and it's where we'll live, and the presence of God will come down to earth. It says that the whole city is filled with the glory of God, okay? And he says that when he looked at it, he said that it, it looked like crystal clear jasper to me, okay? And if you've ever seen something approaching just a very expensive, very rare crystal clear piece of jasper, you know, that was just completely... Uh, you know, see-through practically. I know Lisa knows a lot about these rocks and everything, but you know, sometimes you can get a rock. I've got some of them at home that are so clear that you can shine a light on it and you can see through that rock. You can see your hand on the other side. Not clear like a piece of glass, but you know, it's clear. So you can just try to imagine a whole city made in such a way that the light of Jesus, the glory of God is just radiating out of that entire city. So it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And again, it's not something of our dreams. It's what's real right now. This is actually our home. We haven't been there yet, but this is where we come from. This is where we were born again into. This is our homeland. This is our place. And, you know, it's, it's a picture of the life that we should be living already on this earth with our mind set on those things that are full of light, that are full of beauty, you know, let, you know, think on these things, as Paul says in Philippians, right? And there are these 12 gates. So the gates tell us, first of all, that there is an entrance to the city. It's not closed off, okay? It's not closed off. It's a picture, you know, our church should never be a place that's closed off to people. It should be a place, uh, we might as well close it off if we're not going to have the presence of God here and put a sign on the door that says Ichabod, like they did, the glory has left. But if we're going to have the presence of God, if we have the presence of God in our lives, then it should be a place, like Jesus said, a house of prayer for all the nations, a place where people meet God, and the doors are open. There are gates, there are entrances. 
Notice that the gates, there's one gate for each tribe of Israel. And so we have this, because we're going to look at the foundation stones in a minute, which are the 12 apostles of the Lamb. <clears throat> so we have this picture of the entrance into the city is by the faith of Abraham, through the law and through the prophets. You know, if, if you read in the New Testament, you'll see that our faith is called the faith of Abraham. You'll see that we are called Israel, even if we're not Jewish, even if we've become Jewish, we've been made Israelites by faith. You'll see that Abraham, in a single day, became Jewish by faith. He wasn't born Jewish. He wasn't even born a Hebrew. He was born in Babylon. And to be a Jew means to be a Jew by faith. To be a Hebrew, to be Israel, means to be Israel by faith. Jacob was given the name Israel in a single moment by God. He wasn't Israel before that moment, but by faith he became Israel and he was named Israel. And so the entrance is by this faith of Abraham through the law and the prophets. Notice that there are 12 angels, 12 angels. And uh, so at, at, at each gate, there is an angel that we're going to see here in just a few minutes when we read down. In fact, let's, let's look down at verse 21. In verse 21, it says, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Everybody knows that, the pearly gates, right? The twelve gate, pearly gates and streets of gold. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. We'll talk about the street in just a few minutes. But there are twelve angels and at each gate, there is, a, there, there, there is an angel. But at the tomb of Jesus, we see that there was an angel also, right? At least one, uh, probably two. Uh, there definitely were two, but how they interacted is different versions in the, in the Gospels. But there's an angel at the tomb of Jesus. And I think it's important for us to hear the words of the angel at the tomb of Jesus when he said, Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? He is not here, he has risen. So each of these gates proclaim that Christ has risen, proclaim that Christ is here. At the tomb, the angel proclaims he is not here. He is not in the place of the dead. At the New Jerusalem gate, the angel proclaims he is here. Come inside, all are welcome. Come to, uh, to, to the Lord, for he has risen. Each one of these gates is a single pearl, it says. Look with me over at Ezekiel chapter 48. For just a minute, I'm going to read one verse. It's the very last verse in Ezekiel. The very first verse before the book of Daniel. Ezekiel chapter 48. At the end of the entire long description of this, verse 35 says the city shall be 18,000 cubits roundabout, or 18,000 roundabout. That's nothing compared to the measurements we'll see here in chapter 21. And the name of the city from, by the way, a cubit is like a man's hand. So 18,000 hands around, or like sometimes it's measured like an arm from the elbow to the end of the hand. The city shall be 18,000 cubits roundabout. And, but this is the part I want to draw your attention. The name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. In the Hebrew, Jehovah or Yahweh Shammah. The name of the city is a name of God. The city is named after Jesus. And the name of the city is the Lord is there. The Lord is there. 
Sometimes I read that verse and think we should change the name of our church to the Lord is there. <laughs> you know, what better description can there be of a Christian home or of a church? And if that's not the description of who we are, then we need to get back to Colossians chapter 3 and figure out why that isn't the description of who we are. Why his presence is not in our house. Because that's what is supposed to be, the, the new Jerusalem. The place that is simply called the Lord is there. He is not here at the tomb that is empty, but he is there in the new Jerusalem. And if we live uh, with our mind set on those things that are above, and we live in the agreement and the love and, 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 and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and Jesus said, wherever two or more of you are gathered together. So husband and wife, you're gathered at home with your families, you're gathered there, you're gathered at church, wherever two or more of you are gathered together. And if you're uh, alone, well, you know uh, perfectly well that Jesus will gather with you, and that'll make two. And, and wherever you're gathered together, wherever you're in agreement and you walk in love, wherever you are my disciples and you're walking in my love, then I am there in, in, your, in your midst. So if he's not there, or we don't sense that he's there, then probably it has something to do with what we've been thinking about, what we're speaking out of our mouths, or what we're doing, what we're worshiping, what we've made an idol in our lives. Uh, because you cannot serve God and serve mammon. So I also want to draw your attention to the wealth of this city. Because a lot of times we think that, uh, you know, I don't know, we just, we just get distracted so easy by the wealth of this world. I mean, it's just so easy. It's just how our flesh is. I, mean, I think it has mostly to do, uh, for most people, it doesn't have to do with wanting to have a lot of power. For some people, it does. But I think for most people, most people just want to be comfortable. You know, they want to have enough money to be able to pay for the things they need to, to do. They're afraid that when they're get, they get old or what if I get diagnosed with cancer and I don't have any insurance and I can't pay for it. And we make these idols out of things that haven't even happened to us. We're just looking at things and we're afraid of what's going to come in the future. And it's very easy to make an idol out of the riches of this world, out of the wealth of this world. But I want you to really pay attention in Revelation 21 to just how rich you really are. How much you have in the bank, you know. Because Jesus said, store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break in and steal. This is your city. This is, you are his bride, and this is your city. If you're a bride, then you have a dowry, right? Probably people don't do that anymore, but everybody knows what it is, right? And, uh, and something's saved up for that wedding. So you're a bride, this whole city's your dowry. I mean, this is how wealthy you are. This all belongs to you in Christ Jesus. This is where your real life is, is in this city. So it says that each one of those gates is a single pearl. I don't have any reason. I, I know people say, well, I'd like to see that oyster, you know, <laughs> but, but it just, there's no other explanation for it. You can't get into the Greek and try to figure it out. I mean, it just says that. Each gate is a single pearl. So this is God, so I'm just going to take him at his word and not read a metaphor into that. Each one of those gates is a single pearl, okay? But the pearl is, 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 is a, is a uh, I guess it's not a stone, whatever it is. The pearl itself it has great symbolic value in the scripture. You remember that Jesus one time um, made a, uh, a uh, parable concerning the kingdom of God. And he said that it's the pearl of the greatest price. That a man would go and he would sell every single thing that he owned 
just to get this one single pearl. So a pearl has that great value in the scripture, that great uh, symbolic value in the scripture that really has a great meaning. Um, I'm not just saying this because it sounds modern. It was, it was very ancient in that time also. A string of pearls was a very valuable uh, uh, jewelry, uh, decoration, uh, adornment for a bride. It still is today. When Tanya and I got married, I bought her a string of pearls. She hardly ever wears it, but she still has it. They weren't the highest cost pearls, I can promise you, but they were real pearls because it has a real value. You know, I, I, I doubt there's a single woman in here that would reject a real pearl. It's just something very valuable. It's something very precious. And, uh, and I don't think any men would reject them. I'm not going to wear them, but if you bring me some pearls, I'll take them. <laughs> Give them to my wife or something. But So this string of pearls, notice that there are 12 pearls. And it's like a string of pearls around the entire bride. You see how the, the bride is adorned with pearls. And that, the, that, that string of pearls had that same extreme value even back then. Okay? And more so back then, I think, because they couldn't manufacture you know, pearls. They had to actually find them in, in oysters. So there are a single pearl at each gate and a string of pearls going around. is a stone of the highest value in the ancient world. And then there's another interesting thing about the pearl. In Judaism, and you can see some of this in the, in the Proverbs, but in, in uh, Judaism, a pearl to the rabbis, uh, and remember this is a, a very Jewish book, okay? To the Jews in the first century, to the rabbis, a pearl is what they would call a wise saying. Like we might call it a, a nugget of truth or a nugget of gold. Or we might say it's a pearl of truth. We could still say something like that today. It was a wise saying. And a string of pearls, like what we have here, was a description of, of wise preaching when the words of God were all brought together into a single string of pearls. Okay? Then we go from there. It says in the next verse, in uh, verse... Uh, uh, 14, it says, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And then uh, look with me down at verse 19. This is the part Lisa's going to like. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald. I can, I can already tell you that if it was a construction uh, according to our understanding and the ways we build things according to man, this would be a bad, bad materials to choose for foundation stones, I think. Plus, you're never going to find one of these big enough to be a foundation stone for this kind of city, okay? But God has it, right? And it says the fourth one's an emerald, the fifth, uh, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, uh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, uh, yacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now you could probably find online a lot of commentaries on possible meanings of these different types of stones and things, and we've talked a little bit about that uh, earlier in the book of Revelation, but I, I don't want to get into that. This evening, I just want to focus on the fact that the foundation of the entire city are the apostles of the Lamb. 
and that there are 12 apostles of the Lamb. And I don't know who the 12th is. I don't know if that's Paul or that's the, the guy, Matthias, that they picked out, okay? But there are still 12 apostles of, of the Lamb, even though Judas did what Judas did. And they are adorned with costly stones. And each one of them is named after one of his apostles. So we have this picture of the New Jerusalem, that the gates into the New Jerusalem are Old Testament gates. But the foundation of the city is a New Testament, a new covenant, the, 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 the apostles uh, of the Lamb. And then look with me at uh, verse uh, 15. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Very bad, bad English translation there, because they're just trying to translate it into the way we measure things, so you'll know the measurement. That's 1,500 miles, but that's not what it says in the Greek. It says the, me the, the measure of the rod 12,000 stadia. And I'll explain why that's really important to not lose the number there. Uh, 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. So it's a cube, okay? It's 12,000 stadia long, it's 12,000 stadia wide, and it's 12,000 stadia high, okay? So he sees it as a cube. Uh, and he measured its wall, and the wall is 72 yards. Again, they did that. It should be 144 cubits. The wall is 100. I do have footnotes that say that, and you may have an English Bible that doesn't say that, but the, the walls are measured. They are 144 cubits. That's not talking about how high they are. That's talking about how thick they are. Okay? The walls are, that's how they would measure walls, are 144 cubits. Um, uh, to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Now, I want to stop right there for a moment because you would just pass right over that, but there's some really important stuff in that, okay? First of all, notice the size, that it's 12,000. These numbers have great symbolic value also in the book of Revelation. We've already seen them, that they are 12 times 1,000, 12,000, right? And so they are in length, width, and height. So if you take the square footage of the square stadia of the New Jerusalem, then it's 12,000 times 12,000. Okay, it's 12,000 squared, right? And then if you look at the wall, that wall is 12,000 squared also. And then uh, if you look at the, down the other side of it, going up is 12,000 square, and going down the length, it's, it's hard to say length, width, and height when you're talking about a cube. But each side of the cube is 12,000 uh, square stadia, a perfect square, and also a perfect cube. The word stadia is plural for stadion, and you might guess that we get our word stadium from that word. And it was one of the Roman measurements. And I think it's no mistake that John uses that here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because not a whole lot of Roman stuff is in this book. But this is a Roman measurement that had a very specific meaning. It's a Greek and a Roman measurement because it's a, it's a measurement uh, that's used in uh, athletic contests. It's the length of the Olympic race course. The Olympic race course, was, that length was called one stadia. And so here we have 12,000 stadia. And it's very fitting 
toward the end of this book that's all about conquering, that's all about overcoming, that's all about running your race and, 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 and fulfilling the call of God on your life until the very end. That's all about going through persecutions, going through trials, going through tribulations, and keeping your eyes fixed and focused on the prize, which is the New Jerusalem. And now you have arrived home. Now you are at the New Jerusalem. And so these measurements speak of these things. Uh, they, they speak of victory. They speak of conquering. They speak of winning the race. Then the width of the wall is also very interesting because it's 144 cubits. And as I said, the cubit is, is, is the length of a man's hand. Okay? And they did have a set cubit, just like we have a set foot is 12 inches, but we all understand that at one time, some guy with a big foot said, that's going to be called one foot and put his foot down, right? And then we call that one foot. So the length of a man's hand, and, and most scholars believe it would be from the elbow to the tip of, of, the, of the finger, but in, it's hard for us to understand this in English because we call this an arm. But in Greek, as in Russian, this whole thing is just called a hand. Everything is. And so you have to say this part of my hand, that part of my hand, this, but we have different names for these things. But this is still called a hand. Also interesting because when it talks about how Jesus was crucified, that they drove the nails into his hands, right? And so our traditional picture is that they would have put it right here, but that's not how they crucified them. They would have crucified him driving it through these bones of the wrist, which is quite obvious that that's the only place that would hold you up. And they wouldn't even hold you up if they'd put it through your hand right there. So those pictures are not correct. <laughs> These pictures are correct. But in Greek, that's called the hand also. So they, they did put the nails into his hand, not into his wrist or his arm. It's just called the hand. So we have 12 hands times 12 hands. That's how wide the walls are. And remember that the walls of Jerusalem in the Old Testament were rebuilt by Nehemiah, right? And they were rebuilt, not by him alone, but by every single person, all hands on deck. They all built the wall, the section of the wall that was right in front of their house where they lived. So again, we have the same picture um, uh, that, that's illustrated with these numbers here of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, who are the foundation of the city, and the 12 tribes of Israel, which are the gates into the city, or really we need to look at that and see, because you know we are all just children of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You know, you know that? I mean, we are the children of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Maybe not physically, but we are spiritually, right? We've been born again because of their preaching. They preached, and then someone else preached, and someone else preached, and eventually it reached us, right? And so in the 12 apostles of the Lamb, we see in the 12 tribes of Israel, we see the entire family of God. So the city is the church, if you want to use that word, perfectly fine word, meaning that those that have been called out, that have been picked and chosen, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, the people of faith, the family of God, those whose names, the way that Revelation describes it is the best, those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is the city. And the very wall itself is measured by what we built into that wall. Do you know, you've got you to gotta get this tonight. You are building that wall. You know, the, the Bible actually says that. He's, Jesus says, store up your treasures in heaven. Because nothing can corrupt them there. You will have them for all eternity. And people say you can't take it with you. And you can't take that with you. But you can take something so much more valuable with you. 
The Bible makes it very clear that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's not, that scripture is not talking about the judgment of the great white throne when those people's names are found not to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life and they're cast into hell or into the lake of fire for all eternity. It's talking about us Christians, that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The Greek there is the word bima. And the word bima is the description of the judge's or the umpire's seat at the Olympic Games, where he would sit and judge the race to see who won and pass out the prizes to the ones, you know, get a gold medal, silver medal, bronze medal. In the same way then, Jesus basically says, you can, you can get a gold medal, you can get a silver medal, maybe you'll get a bronze medal, but it's a whole lot better than getting nothing. And it and says you're going to all, the scripture says, Paul says, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, all of us. And it says to be judged according to what we have done in the body. Are we, so it's going to be gold, it's going to be silver, or precious stones. What are we just reading about here? Gold, silver, and precious stones. These are our works. This is our life. This is our city. A city that's built out of us. Okay, and so gold, silver, or precious stones. Or it's going to be wood, hay, and stubble, and it's all going to be burned up. But you'll be saved as if by fire. So I personally don't want to be watching, walking the you know, street of gold or whatever. <laughs> and, or even before that, in the thousand-year reign of Christ, as kind of a flunky that just barely made it there. You know, I, I, you know, I, I want to have a part in that. And even if you're not thinking about that, if you want to have the smallest success in relationships and in life today on this earth, then like Colossians says, we have to focus on the things above. Because those are the things eternal. That's the real value that we, that we have. One, one of the things I want to point out uh, here that you would probably just pass over, but it's just really cool. <clears throat> it says that these are the measurements according to human measurements, right? In verse uh, 17. But then it says this little statement, that I think is powerful, which are also angelic measurements. It, it tells us something that you will not find anywhere else in the Bible. Everywhere in the Bible... The angels and what they have and what they measure and how they live is completely different from how we live and measure things here on the earth. You know, it's like a completely different realm, a spirit realm that they, that they live in. But it says that now human measurements and angelic measurements are just the same because God has come down to live amongst us, to tabernacle amongst us. And it doesn't say that the human measurements adjusted to the angelic measurements, does it? It says that the angelic measurements have adjusted to the human measurements because Christ is a man. And he was made for a little while, Hebrew says, uh, a little lower than the angels. And he suffered and died upon a cross. But now he has been glorified. And all the angels now submit to the human measurements also. So again, it's just something that calls us to lift our heads up, to look to heaven. And, and realize just how important we are to God and how important this house is to him, that we should be measuring things uh, and, and, and expecting that uh, our measurements, the things that we do, the same things we plan, the things we organize, the things that we work on, that we do these with the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit will fill and empower these things. And it will be such that, as the Scripture says, the angels will long to look into the things that we're doing. You know, the Bible says that, that when we read the Scriptures, the angels are like over our shoulder, just longing 
to look into the scripture and know the things that we know. But angels aren't like us. You know, angels are, they're not robotic by any sense, you know, but they're, they're more like slaves. You know, they don't have, you know, why, did, why can't Satan be redeemed? I don't know if you know this, but Satan cannot be redeemed. You know, don't pray for the devil, he's not going to get saved. It, it can't happen. He just can't. No fallen angel can, there's no sign in scripture that a fallen angel can be redeemed. Why? Because we were created in the image of God. And being created in the image of God, we had a right to make a choice. We made the wrong choice and we've suffered the consequences for thousands of years. But we had a right to make a choice, okay? Because we're sons of God. But the angels, who in some senses could be called sons of God because he created them, but they are servants of God. And there's a difference between a servant and a son. And the scripture tells us that they are servants. And a servant does not have the right to make a choice. And so if he makes a choice and he goes against the master's will, then there's no redemption for him. He's just kicked out of the house. You're gone. You're fired. You know, you're not going to get hired back. But, but parents don't do that with their children. They want to see them redeemed. They want to see them saved. And so uh, we see that now the angels have joined into our measurements. But I don't know if you can get that. But that, that means that even now, our measurements should be so godly and so righteous that the angels themselves want to come to church at this church. They want to be in our presence. They want to be around where we are because we're the children of God. Okay, so then it talks about the streets of gold. Now, I'm only saying that in the plural because everybody does, but notice it doesn't say streets. So never say streets of gold again. It says street of gold in the singular. There's a single avenue, and the avenue is made of pure gold. The word pure in the Greek is only used one time in the scripture, and it's used right here, because it's not really the word pure, it's the word transparent. It's made of transparent gold. So it's gold that's so refined and so pure that the light shines right through it that it's that pure. I've never seen any gold like that, but God has it. Um, it says that it's transparent like glass. Uh, you see that it was made, uh, was pure gold like transparent glass in uh, verse 21. Um, so here's a little historical information. Transparent glass is something that was just invented, and I say just because that's not very long ago for an invention like that, it's like the wheel. Transparent glass was just invented about 100 years before John wrote this. It was, it was something so rare. It's something, you know, transparent glass to us is nothing. There's transparent glass everywhere we go. But transparent glass was not something that even existed in most people's homes. It was something only a Caesar would have in his palace. And its transparency wasn't exactly like our glass because that method was invented hundreds of years later. It was uh, it is a very modern invention, as a matter of fact. It was like the kind of glass that you see if you've ever gone, because I have done this, if you've ever seen some really old buildings, and maybe it's like at a museum, and they've kept all this research. It's blown glass, and it's transparent, but it's not as clear as our glass is, but you can definitely see when the light's on on the inside. So he's telling us that the street even, even the street, the thing you walk on, 
that it shines with the glory of God. And the street is really important, but we won't get to that as much until the next chapter when it talks about the river that's flowing down that street. Because there's a river coming down from the throne of God, and there's a single wide avenue going right to the throne of God. Okay, so let's look at verse 22. It says, And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. So there's no measuring of a temple now because the entire city is the temple Temple because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple of the city. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. Do the nations walk by the light of the church today? I don't think so. <laughs> They will. The nations will walk by its light. Do we live in a way that the nations would be worthy to walk in our light? I hope so, but I'm not sure of that. You know, the nations aren't walking in the light of the city of God today anyway. But if the reason why they're not walking in the light of the city of God is because we don't have a light burning or because we've hidden it under a bushel, because we're not shining that light out, then we're at fault for that. As God told to Ezekiel, if you don't tell them, then their blood is going to be on your hands. But if you do tell them and they still don't obey, then that blood will remain on their hands. I don't want anybody's blood on my hands. I don't want to be guilty of not shining a light. I have a light. I know I have a light. We all have a light. But you know, you can put your light under what the King James calls a, a bushel, right? <laughs> Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine like we sang when we were little kids, or I did anyway. Or you can put it under your bed, and it won't give light to everybody that's in the room. You know, in the house that Jesus is describing when he tells that, that in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, the houses that they lived in, they just had one big single room. A lot of our houses now are built more in that fashion with the open floor plan, right? I mean, we got little bedrooms over here, but we've got this big open floor plan. And sometimes I think, I kind of wish the kitchen was sealed off, sort of. But, but I like the open floor plan, too. But the, 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 that's how they all lived. And you had a single light in the middle of the room that gave light to everybody in the house. But if somebody took it and stuck it under their bed, then nobody in the house is going to have light. And so if we're not shining our light, then the nations cannot walk in that light. If they're not walking in the light and we are shining that light, then they will be judged according to that. But this says the nations will walk by its light. And the light is Jesus. And our light is Jesus. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we see that nobody, nobody is alive. Nobody is in this kingdom except those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And there is no abomination. There's no lying. There's no evil. There's nothing unclean. Everything is pure. Everything is holy in a way that none of us can even imagine because we've never experienced that in anywhere on this earth. But when we keep our mind focused on those things that are above, do you ever sense like you're just lonely for that city? Like you're just homesick for that city? Do you ever sense that sometimes during the day it just wash over you? Maybe you're not even specifically praying at that moment. 
I'm just describing something that happens with me. I think other people sense that. And suddenly I just feel like, man, Jesus, I know you're with me, but I want to be with you. I want to see you like you see me. You know, I, I want to be able to walk into that city. I want to be able to embrace you. I want to be able to see you. I want to just sit in that light. You don't even have to say anything to me. I just want to sit in your presence. I just want to be in that place where you are Jesus. I mean, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. If it were not so, I would have told you, he said. What I'm telling you, it's not a fairy tale. It's real. I want you to be where I am. Most people's problems in life with depression and psychological problems and blah, 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 all these kinds of things, most of the reason why people are using drugs like crazy and drunks and all this kind of stuff and all the things that people do to salve over their soul, most of our young people today, you know what they don't know? They don't know that God really loves them. It's a simple little song we sing this, this evening. They don't really know that he loves me so. They don't know that, God, that Jesus really wants you to be with him. And he wants to be with you. Most kids growing up and most adults kind of feel like nobody wants to be with me. I mean, you know, when you have those moments during the day, you got all these friends and people you talk to and da-da-da-da-da. And then you have that moment where you think, I bet nobody, everybody's just being polite. They don't really want to be with me. But, but we don't, that's not true. But don't project that onto Jesus. He really wants to be with you. He said, if it weren't true, I wouldn't be telling you guys this. I want to be with you, so I'm going to go and I'm going to make this place for you. I'm going to prepare this place for you so that I can be with you. Because that's just how much I love you. And the name of the city itself is Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. And it's very interesting that it says there's no sun nor moon there. You know what else that means? It means there's no time there. Because where there's no sun nor moon, there is no time, as we count time. This is eternity. Why did God create the sun, according to the book of Genesis? It does not say that he created the sun and the moon so that we could stay warm during the day and keep our planet the right temperature and all the things they're going to tell you in science class and the moon so that we could measure that, you know, we could, uh, I'm sorry, so that we could look out at night and say that moon's really pretty. It says he set those things as clocks, really, as, you know, to, to measure time for us to measure our days. And before he created the sun and the moon, there was not time as we have time. And again, this is something we can't imagine unless you're really, you know, almost like Albert Einstein or something, you know, <laughs> because we don't live in that. And we never have lived in that. We don't even know what that's like. But, but the, there will be no time in that place. There's no sun and no moon. So if there is no time, one time I watched this movie called IQ. Has anybody seen it? about Albert Einstein. It was just one of those romantic comedies back in the 90s, one of those feel-good movies, you know. And uh, Walter Matthau's playing Albert Einstein. You know who Walter Matthau is, you older people. Anyway, he's hilarious. And uh, they're talking about time, and they're doing their little accent, German accents and stuff. Anyway, I don't know why, but I always remember this in the movie. They goes, he goes, there is no time. And he said, what do you mean there's no time? If, 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 there, if, if, if there's no time, because it's, it's always today. You know, what you call tomorrow, when you get to it, you call it today. You know, what you call yesterday, when you were there, you called it today. There's just today. So when there's no time, there's only one day. 
And notice that he says, there, that it says there's not going to be any night there. It, it, I actually like the way it says it. It says, the doors are always open during the day, and it's always day. It's never night, so the doors are always open. It's always day, because there's only one day. Now, we've been talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. This Sunday, I'm going to talk about the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the new day. And that new day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the eighth day, which will be uh, next Monday on our calendar here, the eighth day, which is the day of resurrection, you know, the new day, the first day of the week. It's why we go to church on Sundays and not on Saturdays. Not that it's wrong to go on Saturdays, but it's not evil to go on Sundays because in the New Testament they already did that because that's the day of Christ's resurrection, the first day of the week, the new day. So this is, the, the Feast of Tabernacles is actually pointing toward what we're reading here. That there is coming a day, a single day, a day that never ends when God's presence will be with us and you'll never be homesick for the presence of God because you will be in his presence, completely embraced and engulfed in his presence for all eternity. There's a new Jerusalem coming and there's just a single day in that place. There's a complete new order of earth and of heaven. But I want you to notice that there still, it says, are nations. I don't know if you think that, you know, having different nations is, you know, Sasha said to me today, she's not in here so I can say this, because so we were talking about some kind of world politics things or something mom, her mom and I were, and she's sitting at the table, she pops out her little earphone and goes, you know, sometimes I wish we just had one big happy country, the whole world, just one big happy country. I said, well, that's exactly what I'm even talking about tonight. That is what is coming, one big happy country. But having this one happy city, this new Jerusalem, we still have nations. You know, it's not evil, your nationality, your color of your skin, uh, whether you're male, female, or like Paul said there, even if you're Scythian, as he said, which was a wild tribe that lived up there in the Russian steppes, even if you're one of them. There's nothing bad about that. In Christ, you're a new creation. And so there's still nations, and it says that there are kings. So who are the kings? Well, we've already talked about that. We are the kings. It says we will rule and reign together with Christ. And it says that the kings will bring the glory of their nations into that city. They'll come through the gates and bring the glory of the nations into that city. So here's another thing. I really want to draw your attention to this evening. That... The glory, God's not against us being glorified. Did you know that? God's not against your promotion. He's not against your blessing. He's not against you being happy and blessed in life. That our happiness is not our goal. Our glory is not our goal. Our crown is not our goal. Our goal is to have that crown that we can bring it to him. And our glory is not eclipsed by his glory. Our glory is not the glory of the moon. The moon can be eclipsed because it doesn't really put out any light of its own, right? Our glory is a glory of Christ in us, that we are made in the image of God. And he wants us to be glorified. Do you know that he wants the church to be glorified? He wants his name to be glorified, and when his name is glorified, then we are glorified. Our families are glorified. Our glory is not eclipsed by the glory of the Father or by the glory of the Son, the glory of Jesus. Our glory is enhanced by his glory. 
our glory goes into his glory and becomes all the more glorious. See, in our world, the way the world lives in the flesh, you can't have that. You can't have two gold medalists, can you? You can't have, you know, two best friends. You know, I remember when I was a kid, you'd say, well, my best friend is this guy, or my best friend is that guy. And then my brother would say, well, which one's your best friend? They can't both be your best friend. Well, no, they're both my best friend. Then you're not using the word best right. You can't have two best friends. There's only one best friend. But you know what's strange? We can all be best friends for Jesus. I don't even know how that works. <laughs> but he, can, he loves me more than he loves any of you, and he loves each one of you more than he loves me. Or maybe just loves us all the same. You know, I kind of know how it works because I'm a dad and I feel like that toward my kids. You know, sometimes I'm mad at one of them and I don't feel that much, but, but I, down deep on the inside, I really feel that toward them. You know, I love them. I can't make a differentiation between them. So how much more for God the Father? So I, I, we just have to get rid of this idea, this false idea of this world that, that <clears throat> concerning glory, that uh, you know, if, if Christ is glorified in my life, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose something. If I really follow Jesus and really commit my life to him, then I'm going to lose everything I have. Peter had that idea once. He, said, he says to Jesus, you know, we've left everything to follow you. And I quit my job? I don't know if Peter had kids or not, but he had a wife. I know that, so he probably had kids. I've got kids to feed. I've got a wife that's, you know, she's not really happy about me quitting the job because I'm not making a lot of money here following you, Jesus. I don't know what Peter meant by that, but there could be all kinds of things he meant. But he said, we left everything to follow you. What is there for us? And then Jesus draws his attention to the kingdom of God. He says, there's nobody that's left, you know, father, mother, and he goes through the whole list, that will not have a hundredfold more in the kingdom of God that's coming. And, 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 and even in this life, but with tribulation. You're going to have tribulation, but you're going to be blessed in this life. You cannot, as they say, outgive God. You will not be diminished by glorifying him, by, by bowing to his will. When, as a church, as a family, in the littlest things, when God is speaking something very clearly, and we know what his word is saying, but it seems like if we do that, that means things aren't going to work out so good. You know, we, we want to build a church. We want to have more people in it. Well, if we do this or do that, then people might get offended and they're not going to come. You know, I, I, this honest truth. When I'm preaching, sometimes I'll be preparing to, to, to give a message and God will tell me, this is what you need to say. And, and I'll say, I'll t- are you sure you want me to say that? Because somebody's going to get offended. And then I really, it's okay if people get offended. That's their problem. If God's saying to say it, then say it. You know, because we're not going to be diminished by glorifying God will only be increased by glorifying God. Uh, the glory will only be enhanced because we're obedient to God, because we're following God, and because we are glorifying him in our lives, because we are those people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In Colossians chapter 3, which we started with this evening, there's nothing in there saying that God's wrath is going to be poured out on you. What he says to them is, why do you keep living like the people that God's wrath is going to be poured out on? Why do you keep living like the people that you once were, that you used to be? Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory will come in. Lift up your heads and look to the heavenly vision of what God has created for us. What Jesus went, I mean, if Jesus said, that, some people know this, but I've been working on remodeling my bathroom. 
I just finished the tiling yesterday. It's been a lot of work. And I got to tell you, the shower's not even working yet. I just keep going in there and looking. Man, you did a good job, Kevin. That looks great. I don't know. They might all fall off the wall after the first shower. But so far, so good. Like, that just really looks great. It really looks good. I keep wanting to get in there and just take a shower, but there's no water yet. But, you know, it's, it's an inviting shower. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I personally would get my feelings hurt if I said to you, uh, you know, Tanya and I, uh, we prepared a, a really nice dinner and we want to invite everybody over to our house this evening because I want to show you the shower I made. You know, and then you said, we don't want to see your shower. Well, I don't know how, I don't know how Jesus feels, but he said, this is what I've prepared for you. And we, we just act like, eh, we'll see that someday when we die. That's not important right now. When it's the all-important thing, it's the most important thing. I just want to end just with a, a parable of, uh, not a parable, but a story from the Gospels of Jesus that's been on my heart all day since prayer this morning. You, you remember the story of the rich young ruler? Because I really think we can see ourselves as Christians in him. So he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, good master, what must I do you know, to inherit the kingdom of God? And then Jesus gives him this shocking answer just at the, right, you know, right off the bat. He says, so what are you calling me good for? Nobody is good except God. And boom, the entire philosophy of this world is destroyed with those words. Because the philosophy of the world today is, oh, everybody's good, there's a little goodness in everybody, and everything's going to work out great, it's going to be wonderful, and you know, live and let live, whatever decisions people are making, it doesn't matter, it's their private life, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus said, there's nobody good except for God. Now, Jesus was not saying by that statement, I'm not God. What he was exposing is that you don't recognize me as being God, so why are you calling me good? You're just calling me a teacher. And the, the guy kind of steps back, and then Jesus says to him, well, this is what you've got to do. You know, you've got to keep the Ten Commandments, basically, right? And then the guy, the rich young ruler, says to him, he said, well, I have kept those things from my youth up. So he thinks he's good, and it's not true that he's kept them since his youth up, because nobody has but he's kept the outward forms of them. And he's looking at the kingdom of God as something on the, with the, that you can attain by the outward forms, that you can attain by flesh and blood, but flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it says in there, if you'll read it in the Gospel of Mark, it says in there, very important word, it says Jesus looked on him and he loved him. He looked at this, this young man and he loved him. He so wanted him to be where Jesus is. He wanted this man to follow him. It says that Jesus was going on a journey at the beginning of that story, and the man catches up to him. He wants this man to follow him. And so he says to him, he doesn't say these words to be mean to him. He says these words to him to set him free. He says to him, there's one thing you lack. You need to go and sell everything you have because it's all become an idol to you. You need to break free from the outward forms of religion. And what Jesus said penetrated to the heart of this man. Sell everything you have and just give it to the poor. That's not the salvation part. The salvation part, that's the repentance part. The salvation part is, and come and follow me. And then the heart of the young man was exposed by the next words where it says, but this man had so much stuff that he went away depressed because he knew I could never do that, because he had made an idol 
out of the things of this earth. And he wasn't really interested in entering the kingdom of heaven. You know, we need to ask our, really, in our lives, look at our lives. You know, are we really disciples of Jesus? Are we really following him? And, and I love that passage of scripture because we just love to play games with it and say, well, you know, he said that to him, but he doesn't really mean that everybody has to sell everything they have and give it to the poor. And what do you want, pastor? Me to go out. And then the pastor says, oh, no, no, I don't want you to go out and sell everything and give it to the poor. In fact, you need to bring a tithe here and we've got to take care of this church building and everything. But why make excuses for it? It says what it says. Just release everything in your life. Because that stuff's only for poor people. I mean, think about what he said. All that gold you got, the cars you got, the house you got, all the things of your life, that's, that's poor people's junk. If you want to be rich, follow Jesus. And you're going to follow him into a city that's got a street made of gold that's transparent like glass and foundation stones like that and all these building materials that are amazing. And most amazing of all, Jesus is there. The Lord is there. And that place is filled with his light. This is where we're going. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word this evening. Now, Lord, I just really ask, I pray that you would just build in our lives this radical discipleship. That we really would be followers of you. That we would just take inventory in our lives in these last days. What is it that has a hold on our hearts that we just need to let go? And we would so let go of it that we would know that not a single bit of it, of the glories of this earth, of the best things this earth has to offer, is going to be a weight on our ankles as we run this race to follow you, Jesus. That we would keep pace with you and be followers together with you. Sometimes, Lord, it seems like your word just comes to us and it's almost like it falls on deaf ears, like, like somebody talking about something that we don't know anything about. Because all your instruction is given to disciples and people that are running after you, people that are actually following you, they know what you're talking about because they're right there. They see it. It's right in front of their face. The people that are standing on the sidelines and far off, they, they don't get it. They don't understand it. They don't even have the same vocabulary. Lord, help us to get on the same page you're on, to get your vocabulary, to get your idea, to get your vision, Lord. Help us to see this city that's our home, Lord, and for us to focus our minds and our actions and our hearts all on being your bride and being ready when you come. And just thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonbillionfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.